have Sunday school. I think that's the only group with Sunday school. I will go ahead and call up our brother Elijah for a missionary report and some teaching from the Word of God. Well, good morning. I see you got me on back there. Thanks. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Elijah Hall, and I'm here with my family, Moira, and then our um, six kids. I have to pause there for a moment because we did add one not too long ago. Um, And um, I'll put a picture of them up here in a minute for you. from those mics. Is that better? Should I come over here a little bit? All right. Let's try that. All right. Well, um, let's go ahead and just commit our time to the Lord this morning before we get going here. Um, Shall we? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity that you've provided for us to come together, just enjoying worshiping uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as a local body of believers here. And Father, we do pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would have the first place in our thoughts, Lord, in our hearts, not only here and not only for one hour, but Lord, that it would be, Lord, the, a, a way of life for us that Christ would fill our vision and he would be truly, Lord, everything to us. And we would not find it difficult or hard in any way to lay aside those weights and those sins that so easily beset us, Lord. But we would just 
count them as, as what they are, as worthless baggage. And we would pursue with a whole heart and mind the person of Christ. Lord, we give you thanks in his name. Amen. So I'll go back to the introduction here. Um, my family is with me this morning, Moira, um, Elisha, Jedediah, Jerusha, Israel, Benjamin, and Jared. So we have one girl and five boys. And it's been um, a joy for us to serve the Lord for the past 11 years in Paraguay with Ethnos 360, formerly New Tribes Mission. And their desire is to make Christ known to people groups who have no testimony of the gospel. And in many cases, uh, no uh, Bible translation either. And so the goal really is um, to see a thriving church um, for every people. And so it is, it includes evangelism, but the goal is much more than that. The, more, the goal is to go and make disciples, as it says in, in the Great Commission, and to teach them to observe all things. Uh, that we've we've been commanded, and so the goal is to first in arriving at a new country for the missionary to learn the national language and culture, which in our case was Spanish, and then in moving to a tribal group, an indigenous group, there are seventeen in Paraguay, um, learn their distinct language and culture, which is is not related in any way, shape, or form. So this video here will give you just a brief snapshot of what the mission is all about. NTM was born out of a need for a channel through which unevangelized people groups might more rapidly be reached with the gospel. In the words of our founder, Paul Fleming, His love is that a man might know, even to the uttermost part of the earth, and so he gave that great commission to us, to go and tell all men, to every tribe, preaching the gospel, that men might know about Jesus Christ and his saving power. Motivated by the love of Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit, NTM exists to assist the ministry of the local church. How? Through the mobilizing, equipping, and coordinating of missionaries to evangelize unreached people groups, translate the scriptures, and see indigenous New Testament churches established that truly glorify God. As missionaries head out, they count the cost willing to face hardship and sacrifice to see a thriving church for every people. In the early days, when missionaries sought to make a friendly contact with the Ayore people of Bolivia, they were aware of the risks involved. Cecil Dye wrote, I don't believe we care so much whether this expedition is a failure, so far as our lives are concerned, but we want God to get the most possible glory from everything that happens. From the world's point of view, the expedition was a failure. Five men were martyred. But God did get the glory. A friendly contact was later established, and the Ayore Church was born. Over the years, NTM has seen God's guiding hand in refining our initial and ongoing training programs. As different nationalities expressed an interest in reaching the unreached, NTM began missionary training centers in multiple countries around the globe. Today, missionaries of various nationalities and ethnic backgrounds serve side by side. Their goal? To see a thriving church for every people. Though our methods continue to change with the times, the message remains the same. Missionaries learn the culture and language well before preparing and teaching foundational Bible lessons that begin with creation and culminate with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then they stand in awe as God gives the increase. It's not about who we are, but who God is. Celebrate with us as we stand in awe that because of who God is, 
NTM missionaries are working among 259 people groups. Because of who God is, over 1,200 churches have been planted. And because of who God is, 640 of those have appointed their own elders. To date, 79 New Testaments have been translated, and 110 translations are in progress. In Zechariah 4.6 we read, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's all about Him. Let's celebrate as we praise God for all He has done over the past 75 years. God is building His church among every tribe, tongue, and nation. New Tribes Mission changed the name to Ethnos 360. And for practical purposes, it's a lot easier to get permission in different countries around the world that are increasingly opposed to the gospel when you don't have mission stuck in the name of the organization. And so for really practical purposes, they went with something um, much more nebulous sounding like Ethnos 360. There's the family. If you see the kids uh, running around here, um, all of those belong to our crew. This is our tribal church planting team, our family, and then we're working together with um, a Latin missionary family. So there's two families. And uh, there's a Bolivian married to a Paraguayan. They have their two little girls. Johnny and Melody have um, Melody and Melanie. And, you know, we've enjoyed working with them so much. It's definitely, you know, even helped our family feel much more at home there in Paraguay because they don't speak English, so Spanish is the language of our team, and that's been that's been pretty special to con- connect us even better to the body of Christ there. So their sending church is an assembly in Asuncion, the capital of Paraguay, and that's where Paraguay is, right in the middle of South America, about the size of the state of California. Yeah. I think I'll stop with California comparisons. Um, yeah, the landmass is roughly the same size. Seven million people, 17 different tribal groups. So if I were to take you for a brief moment on a little trip out to visit us where we are out in Paraguay, this is what it would look like. We'd hop in the, the buggy and maybe hook up the trailer if we wanted to pick up supplies along the way. And we have, we're a good six and a half hours out of the capital. The last 50 miles is on dirt road, and we get a lot of rain because it's subtropical. We're about as far below the equator as you guys are above the equator. So just to give you an idea of the climate, for you, this is pretty much it. You guys live in this similar climate that we do down there. So this would be, you know, typical yeah, if you get a good rain, then you, you go through all these antics to, just to make it home. So, Here's uh, a picture of our house and a former co-worker's house behind it there. Uh, just simple roughs, roughs on board construction, um, but it is uh, more than sufficient. It's a great, great place for us. If you were to come inside, you would uh, step into the living room here, and that's what you'd see, just um, pretty straightforward. Spend the night, perhaps, and then have devotions on our morning porch with us. Um, I see our, our littlest Jared is, is getting in on it, too, there. Um, looking off the porch, uh, the sun coming up, you would... See that scene there with the fog lifting off the jungle? And just below that tree line is the river down back of our place. The kids love to go down there for a swim and when it's hot in the summer. And from our house, we're actually not on the living in the village. We're about a quarter mile from where the village, uh, the tribal land actually begins. And so since we can't, by Paraguayan law, live on community land, we looked for a place that was as close as possible so we could have that daily interaction with the people, them coming over and um, 
So it's a real blessing to be so close that we can be over there and they're over at our place all the time. So that's really neat. If we would take that walk to the village and then step uh, you know, into one of the patios there where they have their houses constructed, this would be a typical scene. Kids running around, playing with things. You see their houses are typical uh, construction like you might see in Papua New Guinea or Indonesia, interestingly enough. So meet the Bua. Um, for those of you who have are new to us or we're new to you, um, we know we've been we've known goodness the Bosworths and ran so many people here for like years and years. I'm trying to think of how many years now, but it's got to be a good I don't know 14, 15 years because when we were working in the Bahamas with my mom and dad who are here with us this morning, Eric and Susanna Hall in the back there working at the orphanage on Cat Island, Bahamas, um, I think we would come from time to time over here and fellowship with you guys. So it go, we go back a ways. Um, but this is the particular tribe in Paraguay that the Lord called us to work with, the Bua people. And if you can't say Bua, that's okay. Just like pray for the M people, you know. Uh, God knows who you're talking about. But um, this is what you would, this is a typical scene here. Just their, their tribal houses like this. Every village that I've been in without fail also has a spirit house in Opu where they uh, worship their gods. And so they're a very religious people. Um, they're very, uh, very dedicated to uh, what they believe and definitely you see the effect of, of that on their life in so many practical ways. There are 36,000 Buga between Paraguay, Brazil, and Argentina, and with 23,000 of those being in Paraguay itself. So there's about 235 communities just in Paraguay. So we've, I've actually only been to about 40 of those villages. They're spread out um, all over the place there. Relationships, man, this has taken a, as you guys know, who've been receiving our updates and praying for us and Man, we want to just, I want to stop and say thank you for that. Thank you for faithfully praying for us. Um, we get, you know, communication with different ones from time to time and just say, hey, guys, we're praying for you and, and uh, for the, the financial support as well. Thank you guys for partnering with us in this. I know it's been a long road, right? We went down to Paraguay 2010. We've actually been out in the tribe for six years now. And... We are currently about a year and a half out from finishing tribal language and culture study. So if I were to give you a scale of zero, being someone who is not a speaker of the language, they don't know Guarani at all, and a 10 as a native speaker, we would be at about a level eight. The goal is to get to level nine in order to start foundational Bible teaching development, to develop those lessons that we, we can then use to... Um, to begin evangelizing. So, um, you know, the light is at the end of the tunnel. We got a bit of a, uh, a bit of a, a sprint ahead of us here. So, we do continue to appreciate your prayers and involvement. Relationships have been tough. This has been one of the probably the most closed uh, tribe in Paraguay to the gospel. Historically, different attempts that have been made to uh, to work with them and. So just to give you a practical idea of what that, what that looked like for us, when we moved, uh, a big part of survey work in visiting so many different communities was to find the tribal leaders, a few of the chiefs, because the larger communities would typically have two chiefs, to find a community where they were at least tolerating of our presence. They would be okay if we... Um, hung around or even came into the village on a, on a regular basis with just the stated goal of getting to know them as a people and learning their language, right? Not even making any mention about uh, the Lord. And so, um, you know, the Lord, as I mentioned, did provide a place where they were like, yeah, that's okay. The chief told me, hey, if you, 
you know, I'll, I'll share some of my language with you if you'll teach me English. I'm like, yeah, sure. That, you know, but the English thing didn't go very far. But um, from day one, it was Moira would go over to the village to drink tea with the ladies. And it's a different kind of tea. It's a cold, loose-leaf tea. We've got a cow horn sitting back there on the table. Uh, be sure and pick up a prayer card if you'd like. Uh, skim through the photos that we have back there of the, the work and um, jot your email down if you want to be put on the email update list. Um, and we'd love to do that. She would take that cold tea over with her because this is the first thing you do as, to, as a sign of friendship as you offer someone cold tea. And so it's the cow horn with this metal straw with a little strainer on the end. And she would go over, and there'd be a group of women around. And, of course, they couldn't communicate at all. There's, they don't use the trade language at all. The women don't. And there's actually very few men who would use any Spanish at all. So they're, they're quite uh, monolingual. And so she would offer the tea to them. And um, initially, the women would just turn and show her their backs like this. No matter what language you speak, that communicates, right? And so after doing that repeatedly, um, one day Moira thought, well, I'm just going to pass him the tea anyway, over the shoulder. And yeah, they, they took it, drank the tea and handed it back. <laughs> after a while, started coming around and drinking tea with her. And so it was that very slow approach. But you know, for a people who have been not only do they have a, um, a very developed uh, belief system and worldview, but they've also seen the underbelly of the outside world. They've seen, unfortunately, and had the most contact with outsiders as being those who would come in and um, want to involve their, uh, their people in different forms of prostitution or strip their land of their lumber or... I've met more than a few people who came back from going to a clinic and for some small ailment, and they come back with stitches all the way up their side for you know the, the whole illegal organ harvesting market. Um, so this is their, a little bit of their taste. And guys, as you pray for missionaries nowadays, especially those who are working with um, your indigenous people groups around the world, there are essentially no more new tribes, but there's a lot of used tribes who have stories like this that are then very jaded against receiving somebody uh, and viewing them in any way as, as being for their people. Um, and so it becomes very understandable as to their resistance not maybe to the gospel because they don't even understand the gospel, right? But to those people who would say they come with the message of God and come to help them. And so uh, one, you know, one day after another and one week to a month to years, and you know, it's come a really long ways. That's not where we're at today. Um, today, uh, by the grace of God, um, you know, the chief... If I didn't show up at a community meeting where the whole village is there, the chief or his son might say, hey, where were you? I didn't see you there at the community meeting, a meeting that they didn't allow me to attend the first four years we were there. And so it shows you just the, the change um, uh, of heart, just the, the way that they have slowly, step by step, the Lord has blessed us to gain entrance into this people and to a certain degree uh, earning the right to be heard. And so sitting down in a picture like this and sharing a meal is, is very common for us now. To go over to one of their homes and for them to be excited about that and to sit down and eat with us. And they said, you know, that's one of the things that right from the beginning stood out. We were not too dirty for you to drink off the same straw with us. You know, it kind of reminds us of in many ways, what encouraged us to be that close to the people was the Lord Jesus himself, right? He would reach out and he would touch the leper. He would touch the unclean. 
he would draw near to uh, the ones who everybody else would scatter from. And you know, ours too should be a response of faith and not of fear. And boy, haven't we had opportunity even here in the States and, and our current situation to, yes, we should seek to walk in wisdom, but certainly in all things, it should be done in faith uh, to the Lord and knowing that he is greater than any sickness and, and any germs that we, we may um, pick up. So praise the Lord. He has brought us such, such a long ways, even to the place where the chief came to me not but a few months ago before we came back for this short furlough in uh, the beginning of September. And he said, he said, Elijah, I heard on the radio this guy was trying to, this guy was preaching in Portuguese and he was talking about this, this mark of the beast. Is that true? Does, does it really talk about in, that God, in God's word? I said, yes, yes, that's in God's word. I said, he said, well, when you're ready to teach the Bible, I want you to tell me about it. And so you can see how God has used, and I could give you story after story of how God has, is continuing to create a hunger in these people for his word. And they're accepting not of us presenting ourselves necessarily as missionaries, but this idea that we're there to share the message of our true father in their language. They like that. They do know about the Bible. And so the, the idea of understanding God's word for themselves is very appealing. So we praise God for that. So God's working. This would be a, if you were just to sit around the fire with them, you know, go over and grab a bite to eat. There's your bite to eat. There's a, a corn cob there. Uh, just, uh, you know, an ear of corn roasting in the fire, all ready to uh, take out and enjoy. They might roast some wild papaya, like this lady is doing here. Here, our kids are making um, clay balls so they can go hunting with their kids. It's all red clay around, so there's no, um, no rocks to use for their slingshots. Firing up the brick oven to uh, have a baking day. Your Moira's working with one of her uh, friends there to make some cheese bread. Here she's learning how to play the bamboo pipes. The mimbureta. And uh, Benji wanted his pet put in here, so that's Benji's pet. Now I'm a little jungle rodent. If you were to just spend the day with them, now you're in the village, right? We've gone over there, maybe had a bit of their food, and you were to just say, hey, I just want to help these people out and see what their day is like. This would be pretty typical, just planting with their grub hose and their machetes uh, in their fields. And guys, this is how we do, I'm showing you these pictures, because this is how we do um, spend quite a bit of our time. There really aren't any prepared materials to teach us the language or the culture. And so it's spending time with the people that we continue to learn more. And while it's uh, slow, it's also relationship building as well. So and it's growing up. Our kids growing up next to theirs, right? This would be a traditional greeting dance, the tangara that they would do. So underneath all of that, those things you'd be able to observe quite easily, right? Oh, they eat this kind of food. Oh, these are the kind of houses they live in. And it would be pretty obvious to you that you weren't understanding much if you, had, if you went with us on our little trip over to the village because it would be completely different, right, their language. And so to make sense of that, obviously you'd need to learn the language. But why the culture? Why even get into learning the culture? Don't we have the truth of God's word? Isn't that enough? Why is it that we need to understand what they believe? And, 
You know, that's, those are great questions. We do have the truth of God's word. The message of the word of God will not change whether we know what they do, what they believe or not. But as we're told in Corinthians that our war and our struggle is to knock down arguments that have been raised up against the gospel of Christ, right? And so the things that they have in their mind that are going to be barriers to the truth of God's word. Proverbs 7 would say that he that answers a matter before he hears it, it is what? Folly and shame unto him, right? So we have, this is where we're at right now at this level eight. Now that we have more language, we're working to deepen our understanding of what it is they believe and why. So that when we teach God's word, we'll be able to compare and contrast that with biblical truth. So instead of a mixing of pagan beliefs and ideas with the truth of God's word, they'll see, no, it has to be one way or the other. So I'm going to give you a sample real quickly here of a recording that I have of them telling just a piece of their count of creation. Manje Anybody got that? Yeah. So I, got, I do have a little translation. This might help us out here. In olden days, it is said that our true father lived on this earth. When he established the earth on its side, he put a little there. Afterward, it is said that he also created the partridge and the true armadillo standing. They didn't really know where they were going to walk. Then they say that the partridge and the true armadillo conversed. What are we going to do? I'll go into the dirt and pull it out, and you, on the other hand, spread it out with your feet, said the true armadillo to the partridge. It is said that they spread out all the dirt that was lying there so that we could dwell on it. Okay, so if we were to just look at this, just a quick glance, different things would pop out, certain similarities, right? That we could say, hey, that might be a bridge for the gospel. How about Our True Father? That sounds like a good title, doesn't it? Our True Father, right? Our Father who art in heaven, right? I mean, this is, that's, and he's the true father. So how could you go wrong with that? That right there could be a, now that's a stepping stone. Well, it certainly seems that way until you dig a little bit deeper into what they believe. And then come to find out they don't just have one God. They actually believe in eight gods. Four are male and four are female. So there are four God couples in heaven. This is what they believe. And our true father is just one of them. He also happens to be the one that his marriage didn't work out very good with his goddess. This I'm giving you the abridged version here. So she left and went all the way over to the east. Oh, sorry, all the way over to the west. And so they had, you know, before that separation, before their marriage fell apart, they had a son who also happens to be the S-U-N in the sky that goes back and forth. So the Son of God is the S-U-N as well in their mind. And so that's why every day he goes from east to west because he goes from dad's house to mom's house because he loves them so much he wants to spend time with them both. So you quickly see... And I could go on to share other stories, and you would quickly see 
that this our true father is an actual personage that doesn't hold really anything at all in common with the one true God. So there's the danger. The danger would be jumping in too quickly and picking up on these things that sound really good. And then if I were to go straight to the gospel, I would be sharing with them the biblical way to be reconciled to a pagan God. Not a good idea, right? Because there is no biblical way to be reconciled to a pagan God. They're pagan gods. The gospel is about how God himself, the only true God, expressed to us in three persons how he made a way of redemption through the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on our behalf, right? And so what they have done is essentially what all of pagan religion has done throughout the millennia, and that is man has made God in his own likeness, right? Fashioned after our own likeness, in our own image, not just with the physical statues, but also the concepts, the ideas, the morality. It's the same, the limitations. And so what they really need to see before we get into the rest of comparing and contrasting this teaching of creation with the truth of God's word, they need to have their concept of who God is contrasted with the true God of the Bible. Right? And they need to realize that this guy... Either this guy is God or the true God of the Bible is the God. You don't have it both ways, and they're certainly not one and the same, right? And so we see the importance, I'm trying to illustrate quickly for you the importance of taking the time to actually find out what it is that they believe, what their concept of God is, what their concept of man is and man's relationship to God Does man need redemption? If so, how does man redeem himself, or does he? Right? All these things, if not understood and correctly brought in tension with the word of God, would be assimilated. The teaching of God's word would then be just assimilated or mixed into what they already have. They do believe that you can be made right with God, interestingly enough, or maybe not so, because it's the same mantra, the round world over, by your own works, right? That's what they would see. And they say, have a saying, they say, God will forgive a man once, but not twice. And so everybody then makes sure that they've only really messed up in the big things once. But then you see the work of the God-given conscience. And if you talk to them, nobody's really sure if they're going to be with God in heaven. The chief sin of all sins would be to marry someone who's not a Buddha. That is the unpardonable sin. Well, why is that? Because the Buddha, which the Buddha means the people, okay? They're the people. The rest of us are the lip hair people. See, the lip hair people do not have a soul. Therefore, they cannot be saved. So if you were to marry someone who is soulless, that would ensure your own damnation. Okay, I'm giving you guys just, I'm just bringing you in really fast. Okay, there's a lot more there. You see how it starts to get kind of weird really quick? If, but if that's not understood and we're not teaching the word of God, knowing in mind this is where they're going to want to go with it, then the message is not going to be communicated clearly. You know, guys, I'm going to go ahead and just ask you guys to, as you think of us in sharing these specifics, and not only us, but other missionaries who are laboring around the world with indigenous tribal groups, man, pray that the seed of the word of God that is sown will not be snatched up by the devil. Okay? All these lies that have been sown for generations, for years, that they, oh, they have a concept of who God is. They think they know God. They have a source of authority, and in our case, it's not the word of God. It's the one man that God gave them and their village who has a direct line to heaven, and that's the shaman, okay? So they go to him for direct revelation. They believe in the direct revelation 
um, to the shaman. And so different sources of authority, combating worldviews and belief systems, it is a clash on a titanic scale. And so we appreciate your prayers as we're trying to be faithful and dig into this, do our homework well, and as we're finishing out our language study. So we're also using this time to to learn how to uh, be able to effectively teach and communicate at this kind of a level, which actually when we're talking about spiritual abstract concepts, that can be tough at times in our own heart language, right? And so we're trying to be sure that in teaching, we're going to basically the language will not be an issue for us. There won't be a language barrier there. Not that we'll be perfect, but that we'll be able to teach with full liberty, and so and develop those uh, look for those key terms that we can use to describe uh, the message uh, of the gospel and the truths of God's word. So the goal is that as we develop these themes from Genesis on about who God is who man is, and his fallen state, inability to save himself, God always being the one to provide a way of salvation, and man enters in simply by faith, then we see that all the sacrifices then, as they learn about those, which they have sacrifices as well, I won't mention that now, but then they will understand those. So when it comes to the introduction of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist, as behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, when they come to that, they will know exactly what it is talking about in the story. Right Now, whether or not they choose to place their faith in Christ as their Savior is a different story. But they'll be understanding the story. They'll be understanding why it is And they'll say, well, of course, God could, this is what was promised all the way back in the garden, right? So these dots are are connected for them, and the story makes sense. And, you know, praise God that in this country we still have so many Judeo-Christian roots, a heritage that allows us, in many ways, to cut to the quick and jump in to a much shorter gospel presentation with people. In this case, the foundations are all wrong, right? And so there is, there is so much work to be done. So we thank you guys for your prayer as we continue to um, seek the Lord's wisdom and that he would indeed um, give us wisdom as to how to engage this people and that the Lord would speed our work in trying to finish out language and culture study so that we can get into this here in the next a year and a half, uh, two years out. So thank you guys again for that. Let's go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and pause this here. I've got a lot of other, you can just put a blank screen on there if you'd like or something nice to look at. There we go. Um, just going to pause that because the, the clock continues to tick and we would love to uh, get into the Word of God here and also... Um, share a few thoughts. It was brought to my attention that you guys have been going through the uh, first few chapters of the book of Revelation here lately and and now um, looking at Revelation chapter 6. So I'm not going to be stealing the thunder of whoever's coming next. Rather, this might be just a little bit of review. But even more so, A particular focus, if we could look at these seven churches in the first few chapters of Revelation, I have some very specific, a particular thought that I'd like to zero in on. You guys have heard, no doubt, some really great teaching on the seven churches and going into those one by one and looking at Christ's evaluation of the church, right? The particular struggles of these churches, perhaps looking at them in their historical context as well to gain a better insight as to what their their particular context was like, what the dynamics were in the church. Wonderful things to look at. So much can be and has been uh, expounded um, from those uh, on those points 
And uh, no doubt God would have us to, as all that information is, so much is included here with these seven churches. This morning, if we could look specifically at how Christ presents himself to the church. That's what I'd like to zero in on. Christ does something very unique here. He's directly addressing these seven churches in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And what he does is he uses a descriptive phrase or a title of himself to present himself in that light to this particular church, right? And here's the idea, guys, because of the time, I'm going to jump to the quick and, and lay right out my thinking in this, and hopefully not mine, but what the Word of God bears out. And that is that the purpose behind each one of those introductions is for Christ basically to give a unique revelation of himself. I'm going to pause there. Unique in the sense of we all know, have come to know God in general terms, right? All of eternity, we're going to grow in knowing God, right? This is life eternal, that what? That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's eternal life, man. That is what it is all about is knowing God. And and so while we do know God, we don't know God. That's my point, right? It would be comparable to someone who's been, to give an, an earthly uh, an example, someone who's been married for 18 years, like my wife and I, and something pops up, and you look at the other person and you say, man, I never knew that about you. After all these years, I've been the person who's lived closest to you. Have anybody for the last several decades, I never knew that about your story. I never knew that about your preference. I never knew you had that ability. I never knew you had that insight, right? So even if as small and finite as we are, we can see this concept amongst our own selves and our relationships just when you thought you knew somebody, there's something new to find out, right? That's a little reflection of what God is like. Only on it, in no, no way a direct or even you know, comparison in, in any sense because God is not on a scale. God is not just bigger and more awesome than we are. God is off the chart. He goes on the God chart, okay? And no other God's on that thing. That's just reserved for him, right? He's not, but why do I say that? Because God is not part of the created, right? And so, yes, we do see these reflections, but it's not just that God is more awesome or powerful than us. There is no order of magnitude. God is infinitely beyond what we are. And so when Christ is evaluating one of these churches and he's saying, Okay, so this is where you guys are at, and this is a particular struggle or need that you have. The answer, this is, this is, I'm coming back trying to center on my train of thought here. The answer to that need is you need to know me in a way you have not known me before. Because if you knew me in that way, you would not struggle with this. Okay? Again, just a real practical illustration. If I'm trying to figure out this wiring thing and for some reason I've, I've had the bright idea of trying to put solar panels on my house out in the tribe but never done that before and haven't worked much with electrical, I could, I could work on that and work on that and man, it could just become this great big thing of discouragement and frustration and everything else when let's say I didn't know all along that a phone call away was my dad who happens to know all about that. In just a, a couple quick steps and instructions and man, it's all put together and it's taken care of, right? So again, we see this in a very earthly way, but with God, let's, let's look at some examples here. So let's look at Ephesus 
We know what their need is. We're going to look at that very specifically in verse 4 of chapter 2. It says, But I have this against you, Christ saying this to the church at Ephesus, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And so while they're commended for so many things, like this is the church that has it all together and they're doing it right. But their heart is no longer close to the Lord like it was in the beginning. Right? How do they need to know Christ? How does Christ present himself? Verse 1, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So Christ then presents himself to this church that is distant to him in their affections. As he uses terms of physical proximity and closeness. The one who holds, right? The one who is amongst. Maybe you've drifted from me, but you need to know that I have not drifted from you. Okay? Isn't that what we do when we feel like someone's grown cold or distant to us in a relationship? And we're like, man, I really need to reach out to that person and let them know that I love them. Why? Because I'm feeling it's just cool there, you know? So, so he is taking this step to say, okay, you need, but it's different because he's not saying I'm going to do an expression of love. He says, you need to know me as the one who holds, see? I'm the one who holds you. So when you start thinking, they need to start thinking about Christ in those terms of nearness and intimacy, what would be the natural response to start having those feelings generated in their own hearts, right? You see, far too often, we have a need, and we're maybe even aware of the need, problem is often where we go to find the solution to that need. I don't really love the Lord the way I should. I should just try to love him harder. And not, not going to work. It's not, it just, I don't have it. So I got to generate this. I'm going to auto generate this love for God because I find it lacking. Really? You're the source of the love you need for God. You're the source of that. I don't think so. We never have been. We've never been the source of our salvation. We're not the source for the motivating factor for the spirit-filled life. We're not the source for our sanctification either. What did Paul say was his source? He said, the love of Christ constraineth me. That is what bound him to, that's what moved him, that's what pushed him to work and labor for God. It wasn't Paul's love. It was the love of Christ. When I'm aware of this is how much Christ loves me, then I just love him back, like knee-jerk reaction. I don't have to come up with it. So then living out the Christian life becomes an auto-response to the revelation of who Christ is. So if somebody doesn't fear God, do they need to like generate this fear? No, you just need to know God a little bit better. And they'll be like, whoa, oh my word. You know, this guy is a consuming fire. Don't play games with him. All right? So that response, again, as we look in the Christian life, guys, this is tied directly into sanctification. And that's what I'm hoping we'll see here. This is... This thought, I'm going to leave you with some optional homework. If you want to take this farther, look at the church, um, look at Smyrna, and you will see Christ presenting himself as the life giver. Why? Because their struggle is that they are afraid of death. Okay? You'll see in Pergamum, Christ presents himself as the defender and the deliverer, right? And he does that by presenting himself as the one with the sharp two-edged sword. He is going to come and war against those, it's very clear in the text, not the believers, but those who have 
taken a position of power in the church as wolves amongst the sheep and have them under oppression. He promises then to come and to defend and deliver them. They feel helpless and persecuted, and they are. And so Christ presents himself as their deliverer and their defender. That's what will give them the strength to continue to faithfully serve Christ when they can't remove that oppression. They can't do it. See, each one of these struggles, it's where we come to an impasse, something that we cannot do. We, we, we can't move that mountain. We can't get there any other way. And we're stuck. And you know what? God intentionally gets us stuck. Just like he did with the disciples, right? There's 5,000 people there to feed. The people are hungry. There's a problem. There's a need. And so what does Jesus tell his disciples? You do it. You feed them. Yeah. Why? Because it was a lesson about where are they going to go for their source. Where did they immediately go? Where did they immediately go for their source? Well, you couldn't feed. We couldn't feed them even if we had all, you know. Uh, and, and they start calculating and running the numbers and we can't do this. This is impossible. That's the point. We can't do this. But then Jesus shows them the example. And what does he do? He prays to the Father. And he thanks the Father of, for what he's about to do. Right? So Christ modeled what sanctification looks like. And it is a life of dependency on God. God provides he chooses to submit to the Father, and he even took it as far as saying, the very words that I speak are not my words. That's the level of dependency that Christ lived. So when we see our faith come to a place of crisis, we should even thank God for that, because it is God inviting you to know him in a deeper way, right? I mean, the church at Smyrna. Man, if there's any church here out of this, like if I was church shopping, I know we're not supposed to do that. It's not very spiritual, but everybody does. So if you were church shopping and you were like, okay, which one of these seven churches am I going to go to this week? Pretend they're all lined up on the same street. Like, look at the church at Smyrna compared to Laodicea. I mean, honestly, right? Um, I mean, the Laodiceans, like they're naked, blind and everything, and they don't even know it, right? Probably not good teaching. The church at Smyrna here... These guys are commended by the Lord himself as being, even though he says in verse 9 of chapter 2, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. They were materially poor, but if the Lord Jesus, imagine the Lord Jesus Christ saying that about this meeting this morning, would he say that? We say, but you're spiritually rich. But did they still have need? Did they still have areas of struggle? Sure they did. And this was one of them, their fear of death. And hey, I'm not criticizing that because who wouldn't be afraid in the, kind of, in the face of the sort of persecution they were under, right? In fact, Christ confirmed the severity of their persecution and said that some of you are going to be cast into prison and killed, right? And so it was real, and I'm not in any way trying to, uh, making light of that struggle. Man, if they were in their state, no doubt I, I would be, you know, totally freaking out. And so we see, as we go through these churches, we talked about Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. We see Christ really presents himself as the Holy One who judges the wicked, again, uh, presenting himself in a way of, of, in a sense of deliverer there for that church. In Sardis, we see that Christ presents himself as the one who is the owner of the church. They belong to him. They need to see themselves as not belonging to a denomination that's gone astray to the place where it's actually dead, right? 
They need to see themselves as their identity is in Christ. They need to see themselves as belonging to Christ. Right? And you can have NTM or Ethnos 360 or this, that, or the other. Guys, any man-made sort of attempt at organizing or serving or whatever, that is temporal. That's not our identity. Who we are is we are children of God. Right? They needed to stop seeing themselves so much as whatever label they had placed on their group and seeing themselves as them. They needed to see themselves as belonging to Christ. That would be the answer to their need. The church at Philadelphia, what was the characteristic there? And we'll be wrapping this right up here, guys. The, the, the weakness there was that they were weak. I used the word twice. They were weak. Right? It doesn't say that they were weak in a moral failure sense, in that they were sinning. It's just like they have a little strength. They, they're kind of powerless, right? They're commended for so many things in that passage, the church at Philadelphia. So, how would Christ encourage a weak church? A church who is like, Man, I don't know. It's just like not many of us, you know, and maybe I, I don't know what we we don't even we can't do much. Um, we love the Lord, you know, we're not having to deny his name. How would Christ present himself to a church where their struggle would be with getting their eyes off of their own weakness? Right? He would present himself as the one who has the keys of David. The one who has the authority, which the keys refer to, and the power to open any door that stands in their way and shut any door that needs to be closed. Right? Opening is a good thing if you need to go in or go out. Shutting is a good thing if you need protection from the enemy. You need those doors closed so that you're secure. And, and so they need to know Christ as Basically, what he's saying to them is, look, you guys are weak. I get it. I am not. I'm all powerful. And so it's not a problem. So our points of struggle all the way through here, they're not a problem to God. We should not see these. This does not stop the work of God in the earth, right? It may hinder our zeal for the Lord. It may hinder our obedience to follow the Lord and what he's called us to do because we get stuck on these things. We get stuck on our struggle. The answer to that is knowing Christ in a unique way. And in light of that, we are empowered then to face that head on and say, okay, so I'm weak. I get it. It doesn't matter because the guy who's with me will kick that door off its hinges if he wants me to go through. It's not a problem. The church wrapping up here with Laodicea Christ would present himself to them as the counselor. And if any church needed counseling, it's the church at Laodicea. They don't even know who they are. I mean, like they've, yeah, they've got, they've got serious issues if you look down through there. But you know what? They were not beyond the reach of Christ. Their problems were not a problem for Christ. They needed to go to Christ for their counsel. And Christ would instruct them in what to do. Christ would show them the way. So guys, it's this attitude of faith that we want to encourage in our own body and amongst the other churches. Guys, how many, how many times have you seen a church where they're believers, they profess you know, to be believers, and the more you get to know them, you realize, man, they do have the gospel straight, but man, they're really messed. This group of believers are messed up. You know, you know what? Look through the list of these churches and see how perfect they had everything most of them are not it was not a problem for god god is i'm not minimizing the severity of their state right it was serious stuff going on my point is is god's work on the earth will not be in any way held back god is not going to be held back god will not be slowed down there is a fixed and appointed day when the Son of Man will return. The Father will tell him when. Hey, and you know what? We have little theological problems like, well, what about, you know, the church's job is to spread the gospel throughout all the earth, you know? 
At one point, God sends an angel who flies under the face of heaven and just preaches the gospel to every living creature. Okay, that's, you find that in Revelation. Um, these are not, God doesn't, isn't using the church because he needs the church. God is including the church on his work of building his church. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God is, has chosen to work through the church because he loves the church and he wants to include us in on his work, right? And so that's awesome. And so we should just, you know, be 100% all about in an excited and even giddy way, the Lord Jesus Christ, man. He, praise God, even when you come to that breaking point with your with your faith and you say, you know what? God, I could trust you for this, that, and the other, but really this here, I just had a guy tell me a testimony, and I'm going to end with this. He said, Elijah, I was just sitting down, we were having supper with his family up in Georgia, and he said, I used to tell my wife, no matter what hard thing came up, I would tell her, but at least our daughter doesn't have leukemia. He said, I don't know why. It was just kind of a, like, that was the worst thing I could think of. Maybe because they knew people who had gone through that struggle, that trial. He said, then one day, guess what? Their daughter was diagnosed with leukemia. He said, it broke me. I couldn't trust God for that. But God brought him through it. And he taught him so much, guys, through that. He's, he knows Christ so much better because God brought him to the place where his faith would fall apart. Yeah. So let's thank him for the trials. Let's thank him for the struggles. They're real. They're hard. God is intentionally working it out to deepen our relationship with him. Father, we just thank you for this time in your word this morning. We do pray that you would help us to see it this way, the way you want us to, to view it, to know that you have a good and wonderful plan for us, each one of us for our lives, Lord. And you bring us into very challenging uh, and hard trials, Father, but... We're even told that those are, are precious. They're precious, Lord, uh, no doubt to you because of the new place, the new depth that we go to in our relationship with you, that beautiful fruit that it yields. And so, Father, help us to have uh, this, help us to learn and be mindful of this this lesson, Lord, even as you instructed each one of these churches and just each one in such a different situation, a different dynamic, and yet each one of them needed more of Christ. And that's true of each one of us today. Father, help us to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.